Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'd like to welcome Fatty Kadora, state senator, a Democrat. His uh, district represents a good portion of northern Marion County and a portion of southern Fishers here in Hamilton County. That will be changing later, and we will talk more about that later. So, Senator Kadora, thank you very much uh, for joining me today. It's an honor to be with you, Larry. I want to just uh, talk about a number of things that I have noticed, and I don't cover the legislature, but I follow it because as as somebody who follows local government, obviously, and local education, there was a lot in this legislative session impacting both. But I want to talk about something that happened at the very end of this short session. For those who aren't familiar, there's a short session in every other year. Last year was what they call the long session for budget for the two-year budget. Now, the short session is is basically to deal with supposedly other issues. The budget sometimes even comes up then. But there was a, and I'm going to use numbers for the bills because the legislature deals with numbers and a lot of the uh, media uh, refers to these uh, pieces of legislation by number. This is HB 1296. That simply means House Bill 1296 uh, originated there. That is a bill that, and you can talk more about it, essentially abolishes gun permits in the state of Indiana. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's essentially what it it does. You gave a very impassioned speech, and I saw a clip of that, on the Senate floor in opposition to that uh, particular measure. It did pass both houses. As we speak here on Friday morning, March 11th, it is at the governor's office. He has not decided or said whether he'll sign it or not. I would like for you to just explain why you are so adamant in the opposition to this particular measure. Thank you, Larry. This is a great question. This legislation, even though it passed, was opposed in a bipartisan fashion by Republicans and Democrats. Actually, the original legislation died um, and was resurrected procedurally uh, on the last day of session. Um, so there's a, you, it, we had almost unanimous opposition to it early on for several reasons. We had eight hours of testimony in the Judiciary Committee that is chaired by Republican Senator Liz Brown. Um, and law enforcement from across the state of Indiana testified in opposition to this legislation, including Superintendent Doug Carter, who represents almost 18,000 professional law enforcement officers across the state. There are several concerns with this legislation. One, uh, it doesn't really address any specific policy issues. Uh, Senator Liz Brown said it best on the Senate floor. She said last year we had over 350,000 Hoosiers who applied for permits. The ones who got denied are about 13,000 who had either criminal histories or they had mental health issues or were uh, had something in their background that prevented them from uh, purchasing these guns. So law enforcement opposed this legislation because 
under that new law, these 14,000 individuals will now have access to guns, and that could endanger the life of public and the life of law enforcement officers. So that's, that's the first reason. The second reason, I think Senator Liz Brown also said it very eloquently. She's a Republican, and she said, this is not about process or timeliness of obtaining permits. Uh, this was more politically conceived uh, legislation that is um, basically aiming to help some candidates on the 2022 ballot who had to demonstrate to their primary voters that they are more conservative than others. And these are the words of Senator Liz Brown, who is a Republican, who is conservative, and who is the chair of the Judiciary Committee. So my Republican colleagues, even on their side, acknowledge that the motive behind the legislation was not actually to fix an existing problem in Indiana, but it was more about politics and the 2022 elections. My final point, this legislation was not about liberty and it was not about the second amendment because in Indiana currently, I'm not sure if the public knows this, but last session, the general assembly eliminated the fees for permits. Um, and that was about $6 million worth of revenue that used to go to law enforcement, and the state replaced that revenue through its budget. So this is not about fiscal matters. The issue here is that constitutional rights, such as Second Amendment, which is, should not be a Republican or a Democrat issue, I firmly support and believe in the Second Amendment. I have colleagues on my caucus side, on the Democrat side, who have their permits and they have their guns and they are responsible gun owners. The question is, is that there are other amendments in our constitution or to our constitution that the Supreme Court of the United States and other lower level courts have imposed some regulations to protect the public, whether it's the First Amendment, freedom of speech or others. So if we are to get rid of permitless or permits, uh, do we get rid of constitutional rights in Indiana's constitution, such as the right to fishing, the right to hunting, uh, where you have to still get licenses for that. Do we ask people to drive cars without permits, without driver, driving uh, privileges or uh, driver's licenses? So I think when you look at it for these three reasons, um, it was not solving a policy problem. It was politically conceived to help with the 2022 elections. And third, uh, it does not align with other public policies as it relates to other things that we have regulated in the state of Indiana to protect the public. And it's fiercely opposed by almost, almost unanimously most law enforcement across the state of Indiana with the exception of a couple of former elected officials and one currently elected uh, sheriff in Hamilton County. And that's what I was going to follow up and ask you about this whole issue about law enforcement. I think uh, Senator Brown's uh, conservative credentials are are quite well known and and and, and so forth, uh, but uh, Doug Carter was a former Hamilton County Sheriff. He actually was elected as a county commissioner and ended up uh, not actually serving because he was tapped by Governor Pence to be the state police commissioner and he's or superintendent I should say and he's been there ever since. And uh, Superintendent Carter, as you mentioned, was was adamantly against this measure, but yet Dennis Quakenbush, the current uh, county sheriff in Hamilton County is, is is supporting this bill, but I think you are correct. Based on what I saw, there were plenty of law enforcement people who are against it. Why were so many law enforcement officials opposed to this bill in your view? My understanding is for several reasons. First, 
I think the concept of having more guns on the streets in the wrong hands increases violent crimes in our communities. Some may argue, well, you know, we already have crimes in our communities and we already have the permit process in place. So why bother? Just get rid of permits. And to me, it's like saying we get, you know, we have car accidents and DUIs. Why bother? Take all reg traffic regulations away with the hope and the expectation that all of a sudden now traffic safety is going to improve. We have seen actually on the Senate floor and we have heard arguments that in the 20 plus states that came up with permitless carry, that one of my colleagues made the point, used selective data to say in the immediate two years after the implementation of the permitless carry, all of a sudden these states, including Alaska and Alabama and other places, they have experienced a drop in violent crime. And then Senator Liz Brown, who's the chair of the same committee that, that my other colleague testified about, uh, pulled the same exact data source and showed that on the third and the fourth year, violent crimes spiked tremendously in these same states. So different legislators chose the data selectively to make their points. But what was fully clear that prosecutors, judges, and law enforcement officers felt that more guns on the streets, even in the hands of responsible gun owners, could potentially make it to the hands of those who are criminals, those who are violent. So the issue of regulating access, not regulating the right to own, because that's a constitutional right, but it's regulating the access to those guns. Currently, if a police officer stops someone, um, then you know they don't normally ask them about the permit, but that's not the point we're arguing. The, the police might ask you if you are carrying or not, if you have concealed weapon uh, for their own safety. That is not going to change. But what's going to change is that mainly those 14, 13 to 14,000 Hoosiers who will apply on an annual basis for guns. And now under the new law, they will have access to guns that under the existing law, they were not supposed to have access to guns until they are fully evaluated. So people are mistakenly thinking that Doug Carter is opposed to the legislation because it's going to impact people during traffic stops. I think the conversation is much bigger than traffic stops. It's more about two things. One is about those who shouldn't have access to guns. And the second, uh, more guns in the streets. Guns are weapons uh, of destruction. They were invented to kill and harm. Yes, they can be used to protect, especially in, you know, unfortunately in cases where uh, criminals um, take advantage of good, innocent, hardworking people. So there's un absolutely some necessity in every society to have uh, whether regulated uh, armies or police officers or responsible citizens to protect themselves. But, but I think overall in Indiana, we need less guns on the streets. And by maintaining the permit process, we will be able at least to reduce the number of those people who obtain these guns and use it um, uh, to harm others. Senator, I think this uh, last legislative session is known not just for what was enacted, but what was not enacted. And there was one piece of legislation, and I heard from, I, again, I cover education, I cover the Hamilton Southeastern School Board, and uh, if there were teachers in favor of this bill, I never heard from them. I, the only teachers I heard from were the ones that were against this legislation, and uh, I'll let you talk more about it, but uh, basically this this was a way of dealing with how in school classrooms, very controversial issues are handled. For instance, race relations, as, 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 a, as an example. Um, 
There appeared to be wide support in the House for this, and the Senate had got a different reception. And when the Senate changed the bill, the House kind of acted like they didn't want any part of it. So it went from looking like it was going, some version of it was going to pass, to basically no version was passed, even uh, as the legislative session began to uh, wind down and nothing was slipped into a bill in a conference committee at the end. I'd, I'd like your view on what happened with this this legislation, the HB 1134. At a very high level, prior to 1134, Senate Bill 167 was introduced in the Senate, and I served on the Education Committee, and we heard that bill. And there were unfortunate comments based uh, made by the author of that legislation that made it to national news. Um, that basically mistakenly, and I, I think that my colleague misspoke, and I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he was trying to answer a question, but he did not choose the right words. But basically, he kind of equated between um, very harmful groups such as Nazism and ideologists such as Nazism uh, to any other political group, um, even those who are peaceful and civil and do not intend to harm others. Uh, but that basically created an, a national embarrassment for Indiana that we are promoting legislation that uh, on the surface um, to the public was conceived again in a political environment that uh, evolved right after the unfortunate murder of George Floyd. So the whole nation engaged in a discussion about race and regulating race relationships and understanding the, the rights and responsibilities of different communities. Remember for the last 20 to 30 years, how ideas such as House 1134, House Bill 1134 were not introduced, or ideas such as Senate Bill 167. So you have to remember the, the, the context by which that legislation was introduced. And then, so one, it was on a national level, it did not start in Indiana. It was brought to Indiana by external groups. And then you started noticing that uh, many of those who immediately latched on the idea before it even began in Hamilton County, were um, uh, political candidates who are interested in running on the ballot in 2022, including our attorney general who injected himself in educational policy and titled an opinion that he published the Bill of Rights for Parents. Well, parents always have rights and they should. I'm a parent of two daughters who attend our local public school system. They went to Carmel schools and they currently attend Washington Township schools. And anytime I had an issue or any parent had an issue, there was a process in place. If you dislike a topic or a material that you deem to be inappropriate, age inappropriate, or that your child is not comfortable with, you can go to your teacher. If you can't resolve it with the teacher, you can speak with the department chair. If it doesn't work, you can speak with the principal. If that doesn't work, you can speak to the superintendent. And if that doesn't work, you can go to the board. And if that doesn't work, you can go to the Department of Education. But 1134 had eight principles, and that was my biggest opposition to the bill. It has nice language that on the surface seemed excellent. On the surface, it seemed like we should treat everyone equally, and we should not make preferences in terms of teaching about religion or political ideology or nationality. Um, And it made it clear that we should not make our students uncomfortable in the classroom. I wholeheartedly agree with equity. I wholeheartedly agree that our students should be raised to be critical thinkers. That's what makes democracy, you know, the the model that should be leading the world. But what that language failed or where it failed is in two places. First, it assumed that one, teachers 
are indoctrinating our students with ideology, corrupt ideology, or with teaching them to blame one race over the other. And that is a false premise. When you teach about the Holocaust, when you teach about slavery, when you teach about the contribution of Native Americans, um, these are not falsehoods. These are not, you know, uh, ideas of indoctrination. Uh, the second point is that many of these ideas that are being uh, opposed by some families, especially, especially in Hamilton County, um, I want to say and go on the record to say every parent should have full transparency in what their kids are being taught. And every parent must be engaged in the education of their kids. And every parent, like myself, should be engaged and their voices should be heard. But that does not contradict and it should not contradict with trusting the same individuals that for two centuries we sent our kids to them to educate our kids. They protected the physical and the mental abilities of our kids. When a child chokes on a piece of food, the first to respond on that school premises is a teacher or a staff or an employee. So we trusted them with their physical uh, or with the lives of our kids, but now we can't trust them to teach our kids. When you have 60,000 plus educators opposed to it, when you have civic leaders opposed to it, when you have parents across the state opposed to it, when you have children from almost every school district that showed up at the state house and sent thousands of letters, over 70,000 emails were sent to the General Assembly in the last couple of days of session saying, please don't do this. When businesses, conservative businesses, liberal businesses, the Indiana Chamber said, I think government went a little bit too much in trying to regulate this thing. Um, you can tell that there is an issue with it. And that's why my colleagues in the Senate, there was a division even within the Republican caucus. My Republican colleagues were not comfortable with the legislation. And I suggested, if you really care about this issue, let's send it to a summer study committee, bring the experts, bring parents, bring educators. Let's have a good discussion about this issue. And they refused that. And they shot my amendment down. Yet, towards the end of the session, every single thing that I said that we need to study, the comment of the sponsor of the bill on the Senate side was, I think these are complicated issues. We ought to send it to a summer study committee to study it. So I prefer a nonpartisan approach and not to mess our educational system because it's going to impact our businesses. It's going to impact workforce. It's going to impact our democracy. And we should not indoctrinate our kids. We should teach them you know, um, historical facts without bias, without making people uncomfortable, but we need to present them to be global citizens because we need to deal with the whole world. We can't live in a bubble or be, uh, or isolated just in Indiana. Yes, and uh, you, when you talked about the senator who misspoke, that was Senator Scott Baldwin from Noblesville, and he did walk back those comments later, and it, it did blow up into a huge national uh, uh, situation, and that did have some impact on whether that, that legislation died. That was only a small part of it, but it certainly was one part. You mentioned you, you served on the uh, committee dealing with education, but you also serve on a Senate committee dealing with tax policy. Now, I know that there uh, was a lot of discussion about tax policy. In the end, kind of the income tax uh, over several years uh, ha was enacted, but the one tax cut that was not enacted was a one uh, supported by the governor dealing with new equipment purchased by businesses. That's a tax that generally supports local governments, and I think the controversy over that was how that money was going to be replaced. Kind of give us an overview of uh, from that uh, perch on that Absolutely. committee as to how the legislature ended up with their tax policy this session. 
And I served on the conference committee, which was the last step of the process to negotiate between the House and the Senate on the details of that bill. I served in, as an advisor on the conference committee with my colleague, Senator Holdman, who's the chair of the tax and fiscal policy on the Senate side. Listen, I'll say this. Um, I'm very proud that I'm fiscally responsible. I worked for two Republican governors myself under their administration, and I worked as the CFO for the city of Indianapolis where I opposed raising taxes because that was not a solution to basically resolve our issues, fiscal issues as city or as a, as a state. I am 100% supportive of reducing personal business or business personal property taxes for businesses across the state, especially in the areas of innovation and technology so and agriculture to serve every county. And I'm very concerned in some of these large counties that are heavily dependent on manufacturing that they will be impacted um, uh, or at a disadvantage when they compete nationally with other states. So I'm 100% all in to support our businesses with reducing the personal, uh, the business personal property taxes. Our concern, which was a bipartisan concern on the Senate side, Republicans and Democrats, was that the currently we are sitting on almost north of $5 billion surplus, which is, if you recall, two years ago when the pandemic hit, we only had $2 billion. When the pandemic hit, businesses shut down, unemployment went up, and we did not have economic activities. So the first question we must ask, what was the source of that three plus billion dollars of additional surplus? And is it sustainable? Well, the answer is that was a federal and state partnership that sent stimulus dollars to states, counties, and cities, and to Hoosiers that stimulated the economy. Those dollars are not gonna be sent back to Indiana. So once we spend that surplus, we cannot sustain spending uh, at the same level for future years. And the initial legislation shifted the burden, the tax burden from these manufacturers or businesses to homeowners. So Larry, your home, your property taxes is gonna go up because that shift goes from the business to the community. Well, then the, 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 the law changed and a different iteration moved the burden from homeowners to supplement it or to, to come up with state income tax credits to help offset that revenue loss. That's all great. So that address the first concern, which is we should not raise property taxes for citizens. But what it did not address is that how do we sustain those once the, the effect of the stimulus dollars go away? Once you go back to only $2 billion in surplus, which is necessary to maintain our credit ratings and necessary to operate state government in case we have local challenges. Um, and we discovered that this is not sustainable. So here's where we settled that 150 legislators agreed to, and we thought we thought it was fiscally responsible, and it was cautious approach, and a gradual approach. One, the automatic tax refund is going to go out for Hoosiers, even though we think, one, I firmly believe this is the people's money, and the people's tax money belongs to the people, not government. But the question is, can you use that money to serve the people in a more effective way? So if you layer, you're going to get $125 in a refund versus if I tell you, if we put all of these refunds together and pave your streets or do something good for your neighborhood, you might, or maybe lower your gas uh, prices because of skyrocketing with the Russia um, and Ukraine war that is happening. Uh, can we offset and subsidize and maybe not collect stale state gas taxes for the next three months, there could be other uses to still serve the public. But 
we agreed and we fully supported in a unanimous bipartisan fashion on the Senate side, an automatic tax refund for all citizens. Second, we fully agreed to pay down the debt on the teacher pensions, which will free up, systematically free up more dollars in the future to the tune of $1 billion after 2028 and reduce the utilities. Um, so 200 plus million dollars a year will go to offset the cost of utilities. Even in my view, that impact is going to be four to five dollar reduction per Hoosier uh, per month. While every reduction is helpful, again, you can ask yourself, is it 200 million dollar can be used more effectively to serve Hoosiers rather than just a four dollar reduction? Um, so again, we passed it unanimously. We supported it in a bipartisan fashion, um, and we wanted to be sure that we sustain it. I hope we can come back. I hope that our state of economy continues to be strong after the pandemic so that we can have this dialogue about how we can further support our businesses and our communities. Senator, in uh, recent years, politics, legislating, it's become more difficult, rougher, uh, less friendly. That's what I'm hearing from, from a number of people. Yet, you recently were, were the recipient of a civility award, which is given to people in the Indiana legislature who, uh, and this is a quote from the award, pe the people who uh, award this, demonstrate friendliness, civility, cooperation, and a bipartisan attitude during the legislative session. The people who make the decision on this are your current colleagues of both parties and retired legislators. I'd like for you to talk a moment about the value of civility in this day and age in a place like the General Assembly. Uh, Larry, I had mixed feelings about this. I was happy to be recognized for my bipartisan efforts. As you know, I worked for under two Republican administrations. I worked under a Democrat mayor for one term. I earned two masters and a PhD in public policy and philanthropy. And my focus in life was only to work with people who want to advance the public good. And I respected people's political affiliation because that's how democracy works. I don't want our nation to be a one party system. I don't want a single party to dominate because that's a slippery slope. That's what we see in China. That's what we see in Russia. So democracy works and we need to protect it. And it is easy to take political positions, but you have to ask yourself at what expense, at whose expense? Do we sacrifice the future of Hoosiers and many generations to come so that I can score a political point? I disagree with that. Elections come and go. Candidates come and go. Elected officials come and go. I want to be remembered as the person who brought Republicans and Democrats together, the ones who focused on policy, not politics. Uh, I'll share this with you why I firmly believe in this. When you go through tough life experiences, many times it recalibrates your compass. I was homeless before after Hurricane Katrina. I lost my brother-in-law to gun violence in 2001. I was raised by an extremely hardworking poor family. And yet here I am privileged to be able to work hard under a democratic system, under a democracy, worked hard with the love and the support of so many to be able to be successful. And we should extend that opportunity to every citizen in our communities. So because of that, I firmly believe in civility. I can't look at a person and treat them based on their only on their political view. Humans are humans. We feel pain the same way. We feel happiness the same way. Everybody wants a good job. Everyone wants to be healthy. Everyone wants to be happy, to be protected and to be safe. That's a common denominator that we all share. So that's what keeps me focused here at the state Senate. I will always speak my mind, even if I fiercely oppose a public policy, 
but I will never lose sight that my Republican and Democrat colleagues are honorable men and women who deeply care about their communities. And they're not even opponents. They're not even political opponents. They are friends. They are Hoosiers. They have different perspectives and that's okay under a democracy. But that's how the process works. Now I said at the beginning, I had mixed feelings. So I had, that explains my happy feelings of receiving the award. So what is the sad part of that receiving that award? I don't think that we need to have an award for civility because I think it should be the bare minimum requirement for being an elected official. I think civility should not be a low bar for entrance or to enter the public service. I think it should be the standard, the golden standard that we should hire and should evaluate candidates based on. Extremism on either side doesn't help our society. Indiana does not like extremism. Indiana is a centrist state, working people who are decent. They want to be sure that they take care of their families and they are treated fairly and equally. And, and to me, I, I'm not bipartisan so that I can earn the credit of people to say, oh, he's a good bipartisan guy. I do it because I firmly believe in it. You know, we celebrate folks like former Senator Luger, may he rest in peace. He was an exemplary role model for working across the aisle, even though when he disagreed with people. And I hope that I can uh, follow his footsteps and many other great leaders um, who place the interest of our state and our country above and beyond any political interest. And uh, Senator Luger sadly paid a price for that uh, late in his career, uh, losing that primary election. Uh, but I want to ask you, my last question to you is this. I believe, if I'm to correct me if I'm wrong, that you are the only Muslim member of the General Assembly. You're also uh, a Palestinian by background. And, and I wonder, and this sort of dovetails with what, something you just said uh, a moment ago, uh, having a bit of a different background, perhaps in your colleagues, does that allow you to maybe get a fresh, fresh perspective on some of these issues that maybe your other colleagues wouldn't have and, and might need to be considered? Just a moment or two, I'd like you to comment on that. I really appreciate it, Larry. Listen, absolutely. I think coming from a third world country, when you look at the Middle East, when you look at Africa and other countries, uh, continents and other countries on earth, and you witness uh, nations that are that have not enjoyed the liberties and freedoms under a democracy, um, it makes you always uh, be, be grateful and not take our liberties for granted. And that's why, you know, I cried the first time when I became a citizen and I pledged allegiance to our flag um, and I became, you know, um, an active member of our community way before I even became a United States citizen because I came to this country as an immigrant. I was born overseas. Um, so to me, I don't take these liberties and these freedoms for granted. Um, and I, I want to preserve them for generations to come. And that's why, for example, I oppose any legislation that could uh, infringe upon the rights of people, whether they're constitutional rights first or second or any amendment, or um, things that are not as, as clear, things that are subtle that impact democracy, such as gerrymandering, which is the idea that leads to extremism. When you gerrymander districts once every 10 years, and it is, it's a sin that was committed and still being committed in our state and across the country by Republicans and Democrats, um, that they committed that sin um, by basically creating safer districts that incentivize candidates to only appeal to a small minority of voters in the primary who might have more extreme ideas. So what does that lead? That leads to having more uh, extreme candidates with extreme policy views 
run for public office, win in the primary, and care less about the general elections. And when you send those folks to the General Assembly, it makes it more difficult for people to work in a bipartisan fashion. So to me, I take my job seriously. I'm a public servant. I'm not a politician, never was, never will be, even though I occupy a, a political office. My heart is with the people. I work for the people. They hired me. And if I don't perform to the best of my abilities working day and night for their best interest, then it will be their choice to replace me the next election and I will never take their votes for granted. And that's the attitude that I carry every day in my job. Our time's about up. Anything you'd like to add briefly before we wrap this up? I appreciate you for your service. Journalism is an honorable job and uh, in in preserving our freedom and your podcast. I hope that those who listen to it will enjoy it and whether they agree with your guests and what we say, I hope that it can help us become more critical thinkers that deeply care about our communities. I'll leave you with this message. Regardless where you are, regardless what you stand for, regardless what you believe in, um, we are all humans. I hope that we can extend grace and compassion to every fellow citizen, regardless of their political affiliation. Treat your neighbor well. Let's love one another. Let's do what is in the best interest of our communities. Uh, and please focus more on policy and not politics. And I appreciate you. And thank you, Larry, for everything you do. Well, thank you, Senator. Senator Fadi Kadora, District 30 in uh, the state of Indiana, covering a part of Fishers, although the newly redistricted district uh, takes him out of Fishers. He, at least as, as of the last election, uh, was part of uh, Fishers in his district. Senator, thank you so much for your time today. It's an honor. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Music